Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And please share widely with your friends, family, and colleagues. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we are talking about social and impact investing. We're covering a bit of philanthropy, and we're doing so within an Australian context. We have Michael Trail on the show. Michael is the chair of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which is the largest foundation in Australia by quite a margin. And he is also the co-founder of For Purpose Investment Partners, which is both a nonprofit and also an impact investment manager. He and I first met back in 2016 when we were both giving a lecture at the OECD in Paris. And uh, today it's a real pleasure to welcome Michael onto the show. Michael has a long record in private equity. He holds a Harvard MBA and has done a great deal of really interesting and positive work in the non-for-profit and philanthropy space. He believes passionately about leveraging private capital for social good. And today we're going to be hearing about his work and we're going to be getting some great insight and detail into the world of impact funds. So without further ado, Michael, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Lovely to see you, Alberto, and a pleasure to be with you. Great. It's good to see you after all these years. You're out there in Australia. I'm here in the UK. We made the time difference work, which is good. So let us know a little bit about the um, the Paul Ramsey Foundation and also For Purpose Investment Partners, two separate organizations, but you're heavily involved with both of them. No, thank you. The Paul Ramsey Foundation is in Australia quite a unique beast. It was a legacy of Paul Ramsey who established Ramsey Healthcare. And when Paul passed away seven years ago, he left virtually all of his equity ownership in Ramsey Healthcare to set up a foundation which was worth uh, about Aussie $4 billion. So significantly the largest scale foundation in Australia and on a per capita basis, you know, roughly equivalent to the Gates Foundation. So a remarkable opportunity to do significant and hopefully some system and very strategic philanthropy in Australia. So uh, great privilege to be involved as chair of that foundation. Um, the other major involvement I have uh, where I have a quasi-executive role as founder of For Purpose Investment Partners. And that draws on a passion I have for the idea that if you combine business and private equity type disciplines to back organisations with explicit social purpose, that can make a real difference. And there's actually quite a bit of overlap and common ground between those two organisations. And uh, from a personal point of view, I cut my teeth as a co-founder of Macquarie Bank's original private equity business in the late 80s. So the idea of, in my later life, how can you use those business and private equity skills to try and make some sort of positive community difference is certainly something that's been personally a, a real motivating factor for me. I remember when we had that lunch all those years ago in Paris, you were, you were really very enthusiastic about the notion of bringing in private capital, private resources for for social good. And uh, and I can see that that's reflected in the work that you're doing now. Yeah, very much so, Alberto. And, and going back to those days, I remember very lively, engaging conversation with you about exactly that theme. Uh, when I left Macquarie Bank, which was a 15-year experience I enjoyed enormously, it was to set up an organisation called Social Ventures Australia in 2002. And to your point, what that drew on was some really interesting precedents and experience in the late 90s, early 2000s in the US, where some of the dot-com billionaires 
had this idea of venture philanthropy. So could you use the kind of private equity venture capital disciplines to back not business entrepreneurs, but social entrepreneurs? So all the good things about private equity in terms of access to capital, access to strategic uh, horsepower and the skills that would help organisations grow, but backing social entrepreneurs, people who are committed to making a difference in the community and trying to help build their organisation. So uh, for most of the last 20 years of my life, that's been a real enabling and motivating factor. And that connection with you into the OECD was a good example of, I've always felt Australia's a long way away, as you said, it's a very different time zone, but have drawn deeply from listening and learning to the experience of those pioneering venture capitalists, had fantastic visits with people like Mario Marino, uh, adventure philanthropy partners, Paul Shoemaker, who was one of the early uh, pioneers at Microsoft, set up social venture partners, Vanessa Kirsch at New Profit. They were incredibly helpful in the UK. People like Sir Ron Cohen, who's regarded as a global pioneer of impact investing, has been incredibly helpful and influential. So drawing on those global threads and precedents has been something I've been really keen to learn from and apply in hopefully relevant and sensible ways that could make a difference in Australia. Yeah. And at the Paul Ramsey Foundation, again, the largest foundation in Australia, you you have a privileged vantage point to understand the sort of philanthropic landscape uh, of Australia. How would you characterize it? Like, what's the state of affairs with that? And I know it's a broad question, but let's have a go. Yes, yeah, so we have a really interesting context. So one, one point which is lo local is that the sad truth in Australia is historically we have not had a fabulous tradition of high net worth giving. There's been a lot of money made and a lot of people who have been very wealthy, but, but Paul and a, a small handful of others have been pioneers in giving significant amounts of money away. So that's really interesting and challenging. Uh, we have to learn particularly from the US where there's a, a much longer dated tradition of philanthropy from those who've done well going back to the that great line um, I think of Rockefeller as the, you know, the man who dies thus rich dies thus disgraced. So from the robber barons, there was a sense of, hey, if you've done well, this is a community that's enabled that. You better give back and you better give back very generously. So that hasn't been the same tradition in Australia. So what that means is for us as a $4 billion foundation, we really try and need to learn from those who've done that well using and mobilising big chunks of money. Um, and our focus which we've landed on after a very careful process of strategic review and looking at best practice globally is really to look at areas of exclusion and disadvantage and what are the systemic things that can make a difference. And one of the really powerful conclusions, particularly from spending time learning from organisations in the US, uh, like Gates, like the Pew Foundation have done some really interesting work, McConnell Clark and others, is that if you want to drive systemic change, you really need to be a thoughtful player both in partnership but very explicitly in working with government to try and change some of the policy and funding settings. Because even though the amounts of money you can give are relatively significant compared to the significance of government at a policy and funding level, unless you change the settings at a systemic level with government, you're probably not going to achieve what you otherwise might. So there's been some big lessons and learnings from us. And Paul Ramsey's very motivated to try and make a difference where we have challenges like many Western liberal democracies about postcodes, areas of concentrated disadvantage and exclusion. It's a country of great wealth, but a lot of that's concentrated uh, and there are areas where people miss out. So that's where we're focusing on. And again, the context of being a learning organisation and learning from 
those organisations globally that have done this well is a really, really core part of what we're about. Yeah. I love the world of foundations, and sometimes it's a little bit opaque, but I think there's a lot of great stuff happening in there. And one of the bits that I'd love to flesh out a little bit here is being such a large foundation, having so many resources or such a strong balance sheet. Um, let me ask you a little bit. There's two sides to it, right? On the one hand, you have the grant making that's not to say fairly straightforward, but people would understand, you know, you can you can do good by by getting involved with beneficiaries and supporting them financially or through resources, capacity building and so forth. But then you also have the ability to do good through managing your net assets, right? To making sure that they're 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 put to work in a in a way that's uh, benefit beneficial for society. And so let me ask you a little bit about that because you have that, you know, you have a Harvard MBA, you have an investment uh, background. How does that, how would you describe that, the, the ability to not only make positive change through the grant making, but also through ensuring that your endowment, your resources are, are managed in a way that's conducive to the betterment of, 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 our, of our world? It's, it's a really powerful question. So two things. One is we obviously want to make the grant making part of it thoughtful, strategic. We want to work in partnership. We want to engage with government. But we're really excited about the opportunity to use the balance sheet in ways, and it's an area I'm particularly passionate about, where you can generate decent risk-weighted returns and do good. And it's a point of particular pride. We've got a fabulous team. Uh, there's a guy who worked with Ron Cohen on the Global Steering Group on Impact Investing called Abhilash Madalia, who we were delighted to headhunt from his, uh, from his New York base to work with us. And Abhilash and his team have driven... While it's still relatively early days, we've already committed about $90 million towards quite a broad spread of impact investing. So what are they? They vary from smaller scale, half million to million dollar investments, often soft debt uh, with low interest type expectations, but some bigger investments that actually pass conventional risk return muster. So 15 to $20 million investments in social housing, in some funds that have been involved in driving really measurable social impact in areas around aged care, social and affordable housing, but are actually also driving decent risk-weighted returns. And I think to your point, Alberto, and it's something I've been really focused on, is the opportunity to mobilise big pools of capital to do good. And, and I've listened with great interest to your, your very interesting podcast with Paul Polman, who's obviously, obviously focused on that, having run Unilever, he gets big pools of capital. And I think there's a global trend around how do we as a community mobilise those big chunks of capital in the many sectors of the economy where social performance and impact measurements are really critical. And my firm belief is that you can do both. There's not some notion of, of trade-off. Um, well, just very briefly, one other hat, I'm on the board and chair the investment committee of an Australian pension fund called Australian Retirement Trust, which is a $220 billion pension fund. So it's, it's close to a top 20 global sized pension fund. Now, that board and investment committee is very strategically focused on we must take a 10 to 20 year view of investments. So if we don't do that thoughtfully with regard to environmental, social and governance considerations, we're probably going to let our 2 million members down because we're not going to do things that are both ethically aligned and performance aligned in terms of commercial return. So I think that notion of a very different conversation in the last 
10 years emerging around the power to mobilise big chunks of capital that do good and drive commercial returns. And I'm a great optimist on that. In the work that I've done in the last 20 years, I actually think this is a consumer issue. I'm continually motivated and inspired by, you know, I'm 62. The next generation coming through really care about this. They make employment decisions. They make purchasing decisions based on the ethics and alignment of businesses they either want to work with or buy from. And you underestimate that at your peril. Mm. Now, the pendulum is moving in that direction, right? Where people care about other, you know, you have your risk adjusted uh, uh, returns that you want for your investments. You want good returns, but obviously you're taking into consideration people and planet and other things that traditionally maybe weren't so much part of the of the discourse. Now, even though the pendulum is moving in that direction, if you if you look around at your peers, are most of people, most of the folks now on board with that sort of mind mindset? Or yes, it's more pronounced than it was maybe when you and I met or even 10 years ago, but it's still in the minority. I'm a glass half full sort of character. Uh, so I think, I think there's definitely movement. The part of me that's uh, a little bit more cynical is I, I think when in my blunt moments, I say, well, in my old game of private equity, there's quite a quite a lot of lipstick on quite a few pigs where they're putting window dressing around, hey, we're doing climate change and ESG. And if you lift up the carpet and look at what they're really doing, a bit unclear as to whether those measures are conducted with the authenticity and integrity that you'd really like to see. Having said that, I think the the global movement towards more explicit consideration of ESG, how it's measured. And there are all sorts of recent examples about, particularly around climate and environment issues. But I think that's also spilling over into the social impact space where I've been particularly focused. So to answer your question, I do think since we last caught up uh, at the OECD, there's been significant positive movement. Uh, you know, I'll give a quick anecdotal data point. Uh, the investment committee that I'm on, when I joined that board six years ago, we talked about environment and climate change. Uh, if I'm being honest, I'd say there was rhetoric. It was the stuff of discussion. Now what's really substantially different is that we don't look at major investments in infrastructure and alternative assets unless there's a really explicit consideration of the climate change environment exposure. Now, that's not just moral. That's economic. Because we have to take a 10 to 20-year view, if you're not being very thoughtful about the likely implied or real cost of carbon emissions, uh, you're going to end up investing in some pretty dud things. So you don't want to do that on behalf of members. So look, long-winded answer, but I do think compared to that conversation you and I had over, over a very memorable lunch, the, ne the needles move quite significantly and it will continue to move fast. Mm. And I guess in Australia also, you, it's not sort of some sort of academic exercise. I mean, you literally see the place burning up. Well, it's writ large. We've we've had all of the climate extremities, fires, uh, floods, and uh, when you when you have that visible emotional exposure to that, it certainly concentrates the mind. So it's it's very it's a very live discussion here at the moment, particularly in the context of the recent catastrophic floods and the data. You know, the data. These were floods that fifteen years ago people were saying were one in a hundred year events. Guess what? That's happened three times in the last decade. That's the data doesn't support that. So unless you've got your head in the sand, you'd have to look at the data and say, well, the correlation between climate change and the incidence of these extreme weather events is a bit more than accidental. Mm.
So the glass is half full, which I'm glad that that's your, your take on things. I generally, I'm a realist, but I also like to see the glass half full. And we touched on the pendulum here, moving in, in the right direction for people understanding that there's more than just the, uh, the traditional way of looking at investing. So let's look a little bit more closely at the four purpose investment partners, that proposition that you're a co-founder of, you're an executive director of that. And that's in itself also a not-for-profit uh, investment manager. So give us a little bit of a flavor for what that is and how it actually works. Yeah. And let me give you a quick practical example of what that's about. What connected you and I was my involvement in a billion dollar social enterprise called Good Start Early Learning. Now, Good Start was created because myself and others were involved in raising $165 million to buy out of bankruptcy a failed publicly listed childcare company called ABC. It didn't perform economically and it certainly didn't perform in terms of quality of learning. Our view was that if we could acquire the 700 centres, that this company owned before it went into bankruptcy and we did that with quality and integrity, we'd both do a better job for the 72,000 children and their families involved, but we could actually also drive good economic returns. And, and that's exactly what Good Start Early Learning's done. Um, the investors got a 12% return on any quality measure. Uh, the performance in those centres has been very good. And that's a precedent for what for-purpose investment partners is about. You think about the many sectors of the economy where there's a fusion of the following, a need for business disciplines to operate something at a large scale, a real emphasis on human services, high quality delivery, and the ability to take a long-term ethical focus to running those in an area of significant national policy interest. They're the common denominators. They're big chunks of the economy. Think not just early learning, social and affordable housing, aged care, mental health is a major issue. So that's the areas that For Purpose Investment Partners is focused on. And um, we've raised a fund, uh, got a very high quality team. I'm very passionate about that. We think that has the capacity to grow. We're a nonprofit organisation. I believe in the alignment around that. So uh, while our first fund close was... Uh, a bit under $70 million that came from the foundation and high net worth market. We're on track for what we hope will be a $150 million close. So there's some firepower there. And we're also very ambitious and aspirational. My, my strong belief in that of the team is that that could and should be a five to $10 billion fund investing in those big chunks of the economy. Because we're a nonprofit, um, what we'll do is we'll keep bringing fees down. Uh, it's not about the old-fashioned kind of fairly egregious 2 and 20 private equity model, which I know about. I mean, I've, I've played that game in my prior life, but I think you can run large-scale ethical funds management businesses and, and do that in ways that make a difference and generate great economic returns. So, you know, that's that's what I've got missionary zeal about, the idea that that can be a, a large-scale impact investor and, and it will attract funding from those mainstream institutional and pen pension funds. So that's what we're about at For Purpose. Yeah. And what are the sort of areas that you're looking at uh, at For Purpose and, uh, and what sort of you know thresholds or, or benchmarks need to be met in order for an investor to walk away having a return? Yeah. Uh, so we did uh, we did a recent deal where we bought a, a, a training education business that provides post secondary school qualifications, diplomas and certificates in the early learning aged care space. Um, that was a transaction which was structured offering investors 
a 12% annual return. So we we converted, we bought this business from a private equity owner, we turned it into a non-profit. Non-profit doesn't mean you can't make decent commercial returns. We capitalised that with debt that pays 12%. So that's a terrific and attractive long-term return. Uh, We're very explicit about we want an ethically aligned management team that's focused on the quality of education. We measure that. What is student satisfaction? What's the uh, what's the quality of people going into jobs? What's the feedback from employers around that? Um, what's the percentage of students who complete the qualification? So there's a whole series of quality metrics around that to differentiate what we're doing. And a strong belief, you know, to your point is there's a virtuous cycle in this. If you're providing a high quality service, whether that's in that training business, which is called Catalyst Education, we're looking at other opportunities in aged care. Again, the same metric, we wanna provide a high quality of care. We think there's a virtuous circle. If we do that, that that will attract more clients. You know, if, if, if you're looking to put, if you need to put a parent into a aged care home, you're pretty focused on the quality of service and you want that done ethically, you want that done well. So they're the sort of things that we're looking for. And so that that granular measurement of quality, we think, is just not negotiable. And the alignment and ethical focus of boards and management teams to drive that, which was something I learned and had the, the pleasant experience of at Good State. If you find people who are motivated, who've got skills across the business and social purpose worlds, you'll end up being pleasantly surprised at the difference that that can make. Mm. How do you go to market with these sort of things. So is it like a traditional private equity fundraising exercise, a roadshow? Are there are there parallels there? Uh, or there are, there are it... absolutely parallels, although it can be a bit frustrating because, you know, the, I've been around the block for long enough. I've been involved in financial markets in some shape or form. Again, I know you're very familiar with Alberto. And uh, if you're explaining anything new or different, you know, it takes like that is 3x more difficult than marketing something conventional. So you've got to be very clear about why this matters. You've got to be very clear, particularly about the idea there's not some trade-off. You know, the fact that you're doing good and you measure quality doesn't mean that you're sacrificing commercial returns. It contributes to long-term ethical returns, but also focusing on the differentiators. So I, if I was pitching you as an investor, I'd be saying, Alberto, you should be investing us. It's the best of private equity and making a difference. We take a long-term view. We're not like private equity, which has a little bit of rip it and grip it and flog it in three to four years. It's not about selling it in the short term to maximise the incentive fee or the performance fee. We're here for the long haul. We think that's ethically aligned. We also think that will mean for you as an investor, if we're doing a good job, as we could deliver to good start investors, you get a reliable 12% return over a long period of time. And in a low growth, low yield, uh, up to this point at least, low inflation environment, what's not to like about that? So that's the pitch. That's the pitch. But, you know, as with all of those things, when you're pitching something different, um, you meet with some scepticism. Again, the glass half full is we've had a fabulous response. A lot of the investors who backed us were investors in good start. Uh, They believe that we could deliver consistent returns. They firmly believe that we could make a difference. Uh, so that's that's terrific. Attracting that institutional funding will probably take a bit more time, but we have every confidence. We've had good conversations with the major pension funds, and we know that as we generate those returns, uh, they'll they'll come on board. And that's where those big licks of money come from. You know, the reason we have confidence about that aspiration of a five to ten billion dollar fund is well, the fund that I chair, the investment committee of, it's a two hundred and twenty billion dollar fund. 
there is $3.2 trillion in Australia of pension funding looking for a home. So what could be more aligned than long-dated ethical investments over a 10 to 20-year period driving returns that are consistent with their risk return requirement? What's not to love about that? Yeah, yeah. And the um, the proposition, do you always see it as a sort of private equity um, parallel or do you see things uh, gaining sophistication over time and possibly becoming a little bit more analogous to, say, public equity markets that don't necessarily need the hand-holding and, and one-to-one explanation of what the proposition is about, but it becomes more of, a, of an investment proposition that people can buy and sell without necessarily having that, that more in-depth conversation. Yeah, look, I think the way the market will evolve, one, and I'm, you know, we're, all, we're all creatures of what we've experienced that we think has worked pretty well. The good thing about private equity is that you don't have that sometimes brutal exposure to short-term performance expectations, and that can be pretty challenging. You know, what I did learn and enjoy about private equities, you can buy businesses, you can make longer-term decisions about investment, about management, and get on with it and get on with it in relatively out, out of the public eye and outside of that brutal six-monthly, quarterly earnings expectations. So I think that's a good thing. The differentiator in this to answer your question is I think this market is akin to infrastructure assets. So they're long-dated, I think 10 to 15 years. They're actually pretty reliable generators of good returns, and that's something we learned at Good Start. You know, if I'm a taxpayer, and I am, I think what good looks like in these many sectors of the economy where government's a major player, I'll speak for the Australian context, but government funds about 60% of the childcare and early learning space. It funds about 70% of the aged care space. Those numbers vary a bit, but they're reasonably standard across most Western liberal democracies. That's part of the social contract. So if I'm government, I want that money to be utilised by people who are ethical, who are there for the long haul and who can deliver economically reasonable returns so they stay in business and generate reasonable ethical returns for investors. But I don't want those assets changing hands every three or four years. So I think the answer to your question is that this, over time, impact investing will be like a social infrastructure asset class and it will draw on the best of the accountability that goes with financial performance from private equity but it'll be subtly but significantly different in the sense there will be a longer-term focus and there will be a focus on yield. And I, I, I do think that the, there will be a greater sensitivity about just selling it when you can to a higher bidder because if the higher bidder doesn't have the same ethical focus, I don't think that's a good thing. Hmm. Where are these funds originating from, would you say? So in other words, we know your background, but where are these funds, and, and let's keep it within an Australian focus, or an Australian context, where are they originating? Are they originating in private equity houses that somehow have developed uh, a bigger heart? Are they originating from the boardrooms of philanthropic foundations or possibly the the aspiration of a high net worth individual who maybe had some exposure to the financial markets? Where Because it's not an easy thing to set up, right? I mean, you have regulatory constraints and considerations. You need some sort of a technical expertise. Not something you just wake up and say, okay, let's set it up. So where are they coming from? Yeah, good question. Uh, so I, I look, you know, my original training was in economics. So I'll, I'll answer that 
with a lens of supply and demand. Um, so on the supply of capital side, to your point, I, and I, I chaired a recent Commonwealth Government Social Impact Investing Task Force, which teased out a lot of those data points. So on the supply side, and this is glass way more than half full, foundations, high net worths, a lot of them are saying, I've made a lot of money, I've done well, I am managing a corpus and I want to allocate at least square brackets, five to 10% to this impact investing. It makes sense. I want reasonable returns. I want to use my balance sheet and, and I want to do some good. But my frustration is I can't find enough product. I can't find enough credible funds or deals or opportunities. But the ones that I've done, I actually like. I'd like to do a lot more. So that's really encouraging. There's a slightly different conversation with the mainstream institutional funders like the pension funds. They're a bit more conservative. But the supply side is really starting to happen. And that is where, compared to when you and I last spoke, there's been massive growth for the positive. On the demand side, it's still a bit of a challenge. So I think, and this is where I display a bit of cynicism, I think there are some private equity funds who are sticking a finger in the air and saying, oh, you know, here's a market. If I dress up uh, an ESG fund and I retrospectively say, oh, here's a couple of investments we've done. If I say, well, this is actually quite a green investment or there's a lot of ESG in this, that I'm cynical about. And there's quite a bit of that happening. What also is happening, which is obviously where we fit, so you can discount this for us talking our own book, but we're not the only one. I think there are a lot of people uh, like me who've had the opportunity to work in conventional private equity, commercial financial markets who are saying, look, there's a different way of doing this. I want to be very explicit that I want to use my skills and experience in accessing capital. I want to find businesses which are ethically motivated, but I'm not... I'm not obsessed about making money or short-term returns. What I want to do is align that idea of connecting head and heart, of running things with business discipline for social purpose. And I think there's a massive emergence of talent in that category. You know, my I'm an angel investor and a, a friend of a guy called Andy Cooper who founded Leapfrog Investments, which is now a multi-billion dollar fund. Now, Andy started that 10 or 12 years ago, uh, he's been mentored by Muhammad Yunus, close to Ron Cohen, and he's a poster child of doing just that, you know, a guy with a deep ethical motivation in develop, in investing in developing nations, particularly in Africa. So that's the, that's the intel inside. It's, it's, it's this precocious, motivated talent um, of people like Andy and a generation I'm seeing. You know, our team, uh, I'm, I'm so proud to work with a team that includes a couple of younger people in their late 20s. One of them is an outstanding woman from PwC, another who worked in private equity. Uh, we pay people okay by social purpose standards, but both of those people are getting really, really significantly less. Why are they working with for purpose? And they will say, if they were being interviewed by it, we love what we do. We're passionate that we can make a difference. And I just love the idea that I can turn up to work every day using my skills and making a difference. So that's incredibly exciting. And I think that's the engine and I think that's the soul of the new machine, that, that more funds set up by people with that right motivation uh, will solve that demand side problem. Fascinating, fascinating. And you touched on something that I think is really important, which is this whole deal flow origination. And, you know, where, where are those investment opportunities coming from? Um, is it a question of you guys internally scoping out the landscape 
or having some areas of interest and saying, okay, we're going to tackle these areas? Or are there people from the from the not-for-profit world coming up to you and saying, look, these are some of the key social ailments. Can you figure out a way to structure something so that we can create a fund to 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 improve it? Yeah, it's it's a bit of both. So the first thing that's mo- we exist to make a difference. So if we if we can't see that this is an opportunity to make a tangible social impact, we're out. We 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 won't invest. Then if you look at the deal sourcing side, I gave a quick example before of Catalyst Education. So we did that deal. We converted a, a conventional for-profit business into a non-profit, but the clay inside was a high-quality what we thought was an ethical management team who cared about making a difference. And what they would say if they were on your podcast is, we love working with For Purpose because it's been really liberating that we can focus on quality. They get the commercial imperative. So we turned a conventional for-profit into a non-profit, but in the process, we don't lose sight of commercial goals, but it's quite liberating. And the conversations we can have, they are providing high-quality graduates from early learning aged care. So we open up a market to them because if I'm talking to a national provider like Good Start in early learning or some of the faith-based aged care providers, we are aligned. They believe that we care because we do, because we talk about quality, we talk about ethics that matter to us. So it opens up a different world of marketing possibilities. And and the second part of that on the charity front, um, look, there is a bit of a reality in the cliche that many nonprofits run aged care organisations or training organisations with good hearts and intentions, but sometimes they lack some of that private equity business strategic discipline. And we can have conversations. We've talked, uh, we're looking particularly in Australia at the moment in aged care space. We're having conversations with uh, uh, some faith-based providers and saying, hey, we know you're struggling in terms of capital access. Uh, We're an aligned ethical partner. We believe in your mission. We want to make a difference. But we may also be able to work as an investment partner with you over the long haul to access capital, to inject some of the business and strategy skills that perhaps you could do with to take the next step in terms of growth. So you can see that's a very different conversation. And again, without being, there's a bit of a risk, I'll sound like poacher turned gamekeeper in this, given my private equity history. But the, the reality is that if a conventional private equity fund manager turned up to have that conversation, the elephant in the room would be, I hear what you're saying about being an investment partner, but if you get a better offer in two or three years, you'll be out of here. You're not around for the long haul, and I'm not quite sure that you're ethically aligned. Where, you know, given what I was saying before, we're very explicit. We're here for the long haul. Yes, it's not negotiable. We have to generate decent returns, but we're not about selling this in the short term. We want to work genuinely as an ethically aligned partner. Um, so that's how you know, and we're finding a, a very positive response to that. So you can see, and again, you know those markets well originating those deals, building those relationships of trust and integrity is fundamental to us on the deal sourcing side. Yeah. Now you have all the technical expertise on the financial side, uh, but you're covering different thematic areas in terms of the social good you want to do. So an area you and I both know well, which is early childhood development. Um, There are certain experts in this field, whether it's in the neuroscience or the sort of interventions that work. And do you bring those experts in-house to help you ensure that what you're trying to create change in is actually where you should be focusing? Or do you simply consult with these experts so that they give you the research or the insight and then you figure out what to do? Uh, how close or at arm's length is that relationship between the financial expertise and the thematic expertise on, say, early childhood development or gender-based violence or whatever it is that you're tackling? 
It's it's such a critical question because it goes to the very heart of that. If you're not clear and granular about measuring what goes on, and if you're not honest and have a degree of integrity about tapping the best expertise around the world on that front, you fail. And that's where my cynicism of some of the private equity funds is. Um, so to give you a practical example, when we when we met at Good Start, we put together a global thought leaders group. It included people uh, from the UK, like Ted Mellowish, who is a very distinguished practical Oxford professor who is a global leader in what does quality look like in early learning? And particularly if you care about making a difference to kids who are struggling, who've got ADHD or other issues, how do you make a difference? And so access to that group, one of whom, by the way, Sir Kevin Collins, who was formerly CEO of the Education Endowment Foundation, uh, joined the board of Good Start. Now, that's a measure of serious intent on our part. It's like we want the best people in the world looking over our shoulder telling us what good looks like and being traffic cops on this and saying, this is not good enough. You know, if you want to measure what quality looks like, here's what you need to do. And from the get-go at Good Start and in the work we're doing at For Purpose, we're very, very explicit about the mix of not just commercial skills, but social purpose skills. Who are the best in the country, in the world to tell us how to measure this and, and how to do this? So it's it's part of the, it has to be part of the DNA. And if you can't if you can't measure that, um, then, you know, frankly, you're in fantasy land about making a difference. You've got to do that with integrity. And the gift of this, you know, back to Good Start, and we're finding this at full purpose, uh, people with that background love it. You know, I always remember Ted Mellow is saying, you know, what's not to love about this? You're kind of a global scale lab rat. You love getting expertise from the gurus that you and I heard from the OS. And, and not only that, you actually listen to us and try and put into practice in your centres and you're prepared to invest to do that. Like we'll come on, a, we'll get on a plane to Australia anytime to talk to you because we think you're very authentic about doing this. That's great. Tell me, before we wrap up, how did you get into all of this? So successful private equity life, you don't need to get into the social good side of things. If many people go through a career perfectly fine without ever delving into that. Uh, what uh, what drove you into, into the world of... Uh, social investments well, i think it's it's very much that great jesuit line about show me the boy or the young person at seven and i'll show you the adult uh, i grew up in a country town which would probably be regarded in australia as a postcode of disadvantage uh my father and uh, and my mother were great positive role models and influences uh dad who sadly passed away last month at 88 after a a uh, very distinguished background. He was the first in four generations to go past year 10 at school, did three degrees, passionate, uh, educated teacher, high school principal in the state system. You know, so that's where the, that's that's what I was brought up with. And I think values around community and education are very much uh, part, of, part, of my, part of my DNA. And I think, you know, through the love and care of parents. I had the privileged opportunity to study and go to Harvard and join Macquarie. But I think the existential question for me at the age of 42 and my early midlife crisis, well, you know, you've had a pretty good run. Are there constructive things you can do with what you've learned and the privileged opportunity you've had to make some sort of difference? So that's the motive. Mm. What's the key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind today after they finish listening to today's episode? At a personal level, I've always been a big believer of that idea of try and find ways to connect your head and heart. That permeates the interviews that I've listened you do with people like Paul Polman and Julia Gillard. Find what you're passionate about and, and apply it. And the second is, at a, this is a more 
back to the impact investing, what's this space? Impact investing will be the highest growth asset class over the next 10 or 20 years. So get on board early. Excellent. Get on board indeed. Michael, it's been such a pleasure seeing you again and hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today and learning from you as well. And I wish you very best of luck with the work that you're doing out there in Australia and with this fund and everything else. Lovely to check in. Thanks so much for your time, Alberto. Real pleasure. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. You've been listening to a great conversation with Michael Trail who is both the chair of the Paul Ramsey Foundation in Australia and also the co-founder of For Purpose Investment Partners. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And leave us a rating and a review as well. It helps others to find this show. For information on more than 150 interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll catch you next week. <laughs>